Welcome to the Texas Oil & Gas Podcast, the show dedicated to bring you the news from the oil patch deep in the heart of Texas, with your host, Ryan Ray and Josh Shelton. Welcome to the Texas Oil & Gas Podcast. We appreciate you tuning in to today's episode, episode 72. I'm your host, Josh Shelton, with my friend and co-host, Ryan Ryan, we're making it further and further, man. Episode 72 today. I know, man. And we're in August, which means we have our winner. Last month's winner, Texas Alford. Man, we didn't hear from you. So sorry. This this has closed us out. You have to let us, you have to claim your prize within a month. And you know what, Josh? We're going to keep this bad boy on a rolling. So we have a winner for this month. And this winner has until, um, we'll say September the 14th. So September the 14th, you have to claim it by September the 14th, and you can do that by sending a text or voicemail to 318-599-9192. That's 318-599-9192. Or Ryan at GlobalEnergyMedia.com, or you can find me on Twitter or wherever. You just have to verify that it's you, and uh, we'll be happy to let you do that. So the winner, Josh, <clears throat> I posted this morning on our Texas Oil & Gas Instagram page, um, the, the site that I use, a random generator, and um, the winner was number... Let's see here. I got the name. The number, I think, was 18. But the winner's ID on iTunes was Garrett. Let's see here. Garrett 23. Well, hold on. There it goes. Yeah, Garrett 223. Garrett 223. So, Garrett, you have won a $50 Visa gift card. If you just let us know, you can claim your prize. You have one month to claim it, and we're going to do it again, man. This is going good. Um, we got to give away some money before we can stop doing it, Josh. <laughs> so, I know. So, uh so Texas Alfred, sorry you missed out, but Garrett, you are now in the hopper. You have one month to claim your prize, and anyone who has entered or will enter over the next month until September the 14th has a chance to win $50 on the house. Um, speaking of free money on the house, let's thank our sponsor, which is, again, Drilling Info. You can get $100 from Drilling Info by going to globalenergymedia.com slash courthouse. That's globalenergymedia.com slash courthouse, and... Um, you can get set up and started today on that, Josh. One final thing real quick is um, September 20th, uh, September 21st, September 21st, I will be in San Antonio, Texas for the 20-hole tournament recognizing veterans in the oil field at the Golf Club of Texas, San Antonio, and that is 20holes.com, the number 20holes.com. We had on uh, Greg last week, I think it was last week or two weeks ago, talking about the event. So we'll be there. Um, I'm not sure what they're going to be doing, but podcasting for sure maybe maybe a little about the book um not really sure but uh just just be there if you're in san antonio it's a great event um helping veterans get jobs in the oil field so we'd love to meet you if you are going to be there yeah and ryan we had a a review that came in right in time for to get entered into the drawing this uh this time this go around it was a review from poor man and gave us five stars appreciate it and his review was love the interview with sergio Something about those unique little plays that the big investors don't care about. Cool Joshua Sentinel transportation. So, poor man, we really appreciate the review, and you, you're in. Uh, you're already entered into this drawing that just finished, but you also entered into the next drawing. And Ryan, is it going to be 30 days? Well, I guess it won't be exactly 30 days. When is that? The next one going to be uh, announced? Yeah, September 14th. September 14th. Okay, so, and that's the deadline for. 
uh, for the new, you know, uh, Garrett two two three to also yeah, claim his. That's exactly right. Uh, exactly right. Now, just so we're clear on the uh, the guy from Sentinel Transportation, um, that's kind of funny. Just so we we talk about this, but this is kind of important for everyone to know. That popped up. I text Sergio Saturday or Sunday because I'd seen it in iTunes, and so I texted him and said, "Hey, man." I saw there was a review uh, mentioning you and iTunes. Go check it out. And so he goes to look for it, and it was gone. He's like, I don't see anything. And so I had screenshotted it because I was going to send it to him. Any- I was going to send it to him, and then I just decided to text him. So anyways, um, so then I go look, and it was gone. And so then I see him the screenshot I'd done originally. But then it took like another two days for it appeared back into my iTunes. So when we talk about it, it was it, it was in there by Tuesday. I did the drawing uh, this morning. So um, it was the latest one in there. But when we talk about getting them in there. That's why, because sometimes it just kind of appears and goes away. But I did tell Sergio, it was good to see that someone is getting recognition that's not Josh. And so I was excited. Thank you for leaving your positive rating about Sergio. Sergio appreciates it. I appreciate it. Josh does it. And so uh, it was a good day for me. Well, you know, I, I, I'm good at, like, seeing encryptions and stuff. So at the end of it, he says, cool, Joshua. So uh, I was wondering <laughs> if that was if that was like directed to me. He's got simple transportation there. I just take that as me, man. Okay, yeah, 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 that's, yeah, that's you, Josh, that's you. He's, he's definitely talking about you there. Let's go. He's not talking <laughs> about a guy named Josh that works for Sentinel Transportation, not at all. That's right, that's <laughs> right. I was, uh, my thoughts exactly. Well, Ryan, we have a guest coming on here shortly uh, that's going to be talking about some of the recent uh, developments with the cube drilling, the cube uh, that we, we've talked about that before, and uh, it's a big, great opportunity for us to have a, someone who knows a lot about it is going to be coming on to share, share with us. Before we do, though, there's been a lot of talk about tariffs uh, this I mean, this week, China and uh, and other other tariffs that have that have been put on the, the economy are really focusing on the, the steel and uh, and metal tariffs. They've been complaining. They're saying that you know these tariffs haven't really hit home yet with the uh, with the they're going to cost the the industry in Texas, especially the Permian. But they're saying that it's about to. It's really about to show up uh, as far as the way the numbers are going to be impacted. So, uh, I mean, Ryan, what are you what are you anticipating with the way the tariffs are? Do you think Trump, by any chance, is going to remove them? Uh, that's kind of what we were thinking originally was that you were using to put a squeeze on some of these uh, different countries, and then as they remove tariffs, they remove these. Yeah, yeah, I, I think you know we've talked about this some um, on the Energy Week podcast, but I, I think. You know, where we're at now, right now, Josh, is interesting because, you know, if you watch what's happening, sometimes it feels like Trump's winning, sometimes it feels like he's losing, and so, a lot of times it's really hard to tell where things are going. And it, it really depends, and I think this is important for the listeners to understand, when you're reading these stories and you're following it, I, I, I'm not saying that I have the, the perfect understanding of what Trump's, uh, if he's going to win or not on these tariffs. Um, but I think it's important for the listeners to understand, it really depends on how you view uh, business or how you view trade or how you view stuff to understand whether or not he's going to be effective. And for me, I think um, when I look at it, I, I, in certain situations, I think he has the upper hand. So like with Iran, I think he has the upper hand there. It feels like he has the upper hand um, in that negotiation. The problem is I'm not sure he does with China. Now, I know China is just – there's talks that they're going to you know let go of the tariffs on their side, but some people were saying, well – even though they're rolling them back, there was no there's no political pressure for them to buy the oil. So um, so the argument goes like this: Well, China let their tariffs go, and so Trump people were saying that's a win for Trump. Well, other people were saying, well, China was politically pressured to buy oil before. Um, now they're not, so therefore they don't need the tariffs to prevent them from buying the oil. 
for me, I sit there and go, well, why wouldn't you just leave the tariffs on just to thumb your nose at Trump and the Americans, even if you didn't want to buy the oil? Just put the tariff on there, and you know, just this is a negotiation tactic. So there's a lot of things like that when you read it. It depends on which side of the of the of the aisle or which side of the negotiation, or just even if you're trying to be neutral, how you view uh, the relevance of the material. And so I think we're very not very long. I think we're we're still a little early to to figure out who's going to win and who's going to lose. I will say this though. As we come towards the midterm elections, I think the pressure on Trump to get these deals done is going to grow every day. Um, and if he gets these deals done before the midterm elections, it could be good for the Republicans. If he doesn't and he and the Republicans lose the House, um, it could be very bad for his, his next two years. So I think he's really trying to get these deals done. But I, I don't, I don't I, I'm just I'm not convinced on how much how, on how. Uh, likely that is, and I'm not saying he will do it, he won't do it. I'm just saying right now I look at it and I can see the arguments for China having more strength than, than Trump does, and I see the arguments for Trump having more strength than China does in these negotiations. And it's really hard for me to kind of figure out where I land on these things because um, man, China, if you look at their side of the deal, they, they have influence over the North Korean deal and the Iran deal and their own deal. And so they have influences in all these other things. And so it's like, well, okay, they have a lot of stroke there because Trump's trying to do a deal with North Korea, China, and Iran, but China's involved in all three of those deals. So I, he has more, Trump has maybe have more stroke over Iran, but, but then it ties back to China. So you, you can see when you get in here, um, it gets very murky and, the dude may pull it off, and it wouldn't surprise me because he's a very good negotiator. But I can also see it going very badly. And we sit here, we look at these tariffs, we go, wow, we put all those tariffs on there, and then you blew all these deals. And the industry didn't need the tariffs at the time because we're trying to get deal, we're trying to get infrastructure built, we're trying to get drilling programs going, we're trying to get all this stuff happening. Um, especially with the bottleneck we're having, I could see it. I could see it going either way. I, I, that's a long way. That's that's a long way to me saying it's on the fence. I'm trying to let both sides be fairer because I really don't have a strong opinion on what's going to happen. Um, but I could see it where two months from now Trump has closed all these deals and everyone's high five and the tariffs are gone and man they go okay it was a rough two months but well Trump did it and I can see you know two months from now uh, or three months from now rather the Democrats win a lot of the elections they take over he hadn't done the deals he he feels like he's lost power. And these tariffs drag on, and we're trying to get more pipelines built. We're trying to get things done, and all of a sudden, people are like, "Hey, dude, you know these, these tariffs aren't working." And then the pressure from the the real pressure, because industry pressure is very high now, but the real industry pressure comes against him, and then he starts losing his base, starts turning against him, and all of a sudden, these tariffs are for nothing. So, I don't know if that makes sense or not, Josh, but that's just kind of how I see it shaking out. Which is to say, I don't I don't really know where it's going to land. Yeah, well, I, mean, I think it makes perfect sense to look at. Uh, it, it really just comes down to whether he can get something work out of these tariffs that that will have some long term benefits. That's really the question, and uh, man, you have to hope that he can uh, because I mean it would it would be great for I mean if he did get the deals worked out and then he got the tariffs removed and it you know right it, 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 it seems like he's trying to he's trying to uh, finesse the deal and trying to just hit it. Um, you know, get get the perfect get the perfect setup. Uh, right. I think the China in, angle is interesting because you know if so if China removed the tariffs only because they don't care anymore and they're not going to buy our, our oil, if that's the only reason they move the tariffs, then that would be a big blow to, to Trump because then it would mean that hey, um, they don't have a tariff and they're not buying our oil. That's a big you know that's a big kind of you know hey we don't need you type deal. And so, because there's no reason not to buy it, you're buying it without the tariff. Um, 
So I can see people, if, if, if there, and there's some analysts that I, that I, I listen to and I follow, they really believe that China is not going to buy the U.S. oil because there's no political pressure to buy it anymore. If that's the case and there's no tariffs, it makes Trump's position extremely weak because well, why aren't they buying our oil, Trump? You, they don't even have a tariff that buying our oil. Well, you've, you know, you've got tariff, you know, so all of a sudden you go, well, boy, that could be bad. If the reality is they put the tariff up and they couldn't, they, they, it was hurting their economy, so they had to drop the they had to drop the tariff so they could buy our oil. Well, then Trump's position becomes stronger, um, and so I think over the next month we'll figure out where the truth in that lies. But there's smart people on both sides of this issue, um, and some are saying that no, China is actually kind of saying, hey, you know, we don't need your oil and we're going to drop the tariff, and guess what, we're not going to buy it. If that's true, that would be devastating for Trump's position. I'm not convinced it's true. I'm just saying that there is some smart people out there. Who think that? Um, and so, so you know, and again, I, I hate to sound waffly, but I just, I, mean, I, I, I read some of these stories and I look at some of the stuff and, um, you know, some smart people that I trust and I read and follow, they have different opinions on it. And um, and, and, I, and I'm not really sure. It's, it's a it's a spot that I do feel the longer this goes on, he's going, it's going to be harder for him to win over people, especially if they lose a bunch of elections. Because, if the elections go against the midterms, go against the the Republicans here in a few months, man, it's gonna be tough to have people behind you because you're supposed to be the guy who can close the deals and do this stuff, and then you lost a bunch of seats in Congress, and um, and you get these tariffs, and everyone's tired of it, you know. So, um, anyways, so I don't know, I don't know. It's uh, it's gonna be interesting. Well, definitely something that we'll have to keep an eye on. Uh, earlier this week, there was another uh, article that came out that talked about the North American crude prices and some of the changing takeaway capacity. Mm-hmm. The article came from uh, McKinsey, it's at Energy Insights, and it really breaks down the bottleneck that's been happening in the Permian and gives some statistics to kind of show what's happening, how these prices are going to be affected, and uh, what kind of what kind of what kind of bottleneck we're looking at and what kind of constraints these companies are going to be facing. So uh, pretty interesting article. Um, it's they're looking at some of the percentages here and just some, some, some things here. Definitely want to link this in the show notes, but uh, just turn some of it around. What were some of the major takeaways that you saw in the article that you think are going to be the most pertinent for these uh, companies drilling in the Permian? Yeah, there's a paragraph in here I'll, I'll kind of read real quick. It says, The Permian has seen production growth over 60% since January of 2017, reaching an all-time high of 3.2 million barrels per day in, in May of 2018. The surge in production has placed significant pressure on infrastructure and has complicated logistics as operators attempt to transfer crude out of the Midland area to an end market. Underutilized in 2017, pipelines quickly began to fill up and reach capacity at the end of 2017, largely due to the rapid increase in permanent production. With takeaway capacity constrained, Midland price assessments collapsed as producers struggled to get crude to a demand market falling over uh, $10 um, a barrel from March to May of 2018. And there is some charts in here that kind of go through um, how this looks with the graph as far as pipeline takeaway capacity, um, where the production is. And if you look at the graph, you know, it's, it's, it's striking at where the pipeline capacity, um, you know, where, where it was and where it's and where the, where the drilling goes. And we, some we've talked about, but I think this article does a good job of kind of, you know, mixing, mixing, like you said, some good numbers along with some good graphs. And you can kind of sit there and you read it. The final thing on this, I'm going to say, Josh, because we have a guest coming up, is um, we've kind of talked about these second quarter reports a lot. And I think right now 
you know, this is the time you, you can read a report like this. You gotta get the thirty thousand foot view, and then you need to go and listen to these second quarter earnings reports because companies are talking about like range resources of the day. You know, they announced how um, you know what their drilling is, you know, how much they had hedged, how that impacted their prices, and so there's a lot of good information out there right now. Um, if you're planning your business, we talk a lot, a lot about business on the show for the second half of 2018. You really need to be listening to these reports to figure out which companies to target, where they're targeting, because they may not have, you know, the, like a lot of projects that we work for with these companies, Josh, they're not announcing these second quarter earnings, okay? We're, we work on the smaller stuff. So if, they, if they're announcing, you know, an 800-mile Epic pipeline, um, for, if Kinder Morgan had an 800-mile pipeline and we work for Kinder Morgan, we wouldn't be working on that project, right? But they might announce that, hey, they're going to expand their um, pipeline capacity 20% in the Permian area. Well, they haven't given us the name of a project manager or a project director, or they haven't given us the name of the pipelines or anything. But they said that they're going to expand their capital uh, expenditures 20% in the Permian. Well, guess what we know? we got to figure out who's in charge of the Permian. So um, depending on what size company you work for, you might be able to target it directly, but you also might be able to take the hint and go, okay, huh, they're going to expand into the Permian or uh, you know anywhere else that they might be talking about. So... This is a good piece to um, to kind of get you up. If you haven't followed these discussions, it's a good piece to kind of get you up to speed on what where things are at. Um, and then you can go take that information. And as you read these second quarter earnings reports, you know, to give you a better understanding of why companies are saying this. Well, Ryan, Drilling Info predicted that we'd have $40 million in uh, mergers, acquisitions, and deals that would happen. Uh, so it's a good segue to go into our Texas Roundup, Ryan. We've had deals just every day, it seems like, this week. I I didn't even pull all of, all of them in that I could have. There were there were deals. It seems like every day that I checked in the news, uh, millions of dollars, million dollar deals, hundreds of million dollar deals were happening uh, left and right. The first one I have uh, up, Ryan, is another water oil port for Texas. Uh, there's a company, Trafigura, uh, is building a Texas Gulf terminal project that's going to connect to. Uh, the port of Corpus Christi and is going to be a port for VLCCs. So it looks like they're going to help deal with this uh, this bottleneck. I, I don't know the time frame uh, exactly when they predict this thing to be done, but it's definitely going to help. Uh, I know the, the Corpus Christi is having issues getting the, you know, the channel deepened and widened. Uh, so they have another port they're going to be opening up. That's Trafigura. Uh, Diamondback, they seem to be in the news pretty often. Ryan, they are getting a deal in the mid in Midland for um, 1.2 billion uh, from a Houston-based startup, Ajax. Uh, so they they are acquiring this company for 1.2 billion dollars. Uh, so nothing nothing uh, too surprising there. They've been making moves all year, and I probably won't be the last time we hear them in the news this year. Uh, next one, Ryan Oxy is actually getting a company for 2.6 billion. They're making a uh, a Permian play as well. Uh, and then, last but not least, Ryan Apache Corp. And is that Kane or Kyan? Kane. Yeah, I'm not sure how you pronounce that one, Josh. Uh, so Apache Corp. and and Kane Anderson Acquisition Corp. Uh, announced agreement to create Atlas Midstream Company, a $3.5 billion pure play for the Permian Basin Midstream C Corp. Uh, so that's an enormous deal, uh, Ryan, to see them uh, create this new Atlas Midstream Company. Excited to see what kind of strategies they're going to use to uh, to try to yield more money. I, I would anticipate they're going to be maybe exploring some of this cube stuff that we're 
be talking about in just a little bit with Trent, trying to figure out ways to leverage, um, I, I guess, a higher, higher income resources to enhance and make more, you know, do some more efficient drilling. Because it, sometimes it's just a, a matter of scale, being able to use more resources to, to lower some of these costs. Uh, right. And these bigger, I bigger think, I think it's pronounced Altus, Josh. I think it's Atlas. I think it's Altus. A L T U S. Altus. 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 Yeah, um, you're right. It's Altus Mission Company. Yeah. yeah. But I think the big thing here is is that Apache is like everyone else. They're trying to figure out how to get their product out of um, out of the area. And one of the points they they they, they say here is. Um, Long-term growth development for Altus Midstream, driven by Alpine High Upstream Development, investing in long-haul pipelines for third-party gathering process volume. So they're going to put a lot of pipe in the ground, and they need to, and they need to get the pipe, uh, they need to get the product to market. And so uh, I'm not surprised to see deals like this. Um, and if they want to, they can go probably, um, you know, not just Apache, they can probably go to, you know, Anadarko or ConocoPhillips or whomever they want to. So. Yeah. Well, definitely going to be exciting to watch. Uh, Ryan, also, I checked the drilling info, and the drilling count today was 1,142, which is, I believe it's, let me check last week. Last week was 1,134. So, um, so went up about 10, 12. Okay, good deal. 10, 8. All right, we have a special guest coming on the show this week, uh, Trent Jacobs. He is the digital editor for Journal of Petroleum Technology. Uh, Trent, it's nice to have you on the show today, man. How's everything going? Oh, it's going great. I'm really happy to be back. Uh, I think we were last we talked, it was in December, and uh, I'm excited to uh, be invited back to the show. You guys do a great job. Appreciate it, Trent. Yeah, it's great to have you. It's been a while, man. It seems like it was just, uh, seems like it didn't seem like it was long ago but uh, you know, looking back at the dates it is it was back in december last year well you got some exciting stuff to talk about you know uh, a couple months ago i say a couple months ago it's probably about eight months ago trent we talked about uh some of the cube development that was that was going on in the industry there's a, a lot of articles a lot of news about it uh, but we didn't really have anybody that knew a great deal about it come on the show and talk to us about it so you have a, a great article that i was reading through uh yesterday evening and then this morning um the title of the article is in the battle against frack hit shale producers go to new extremes uh can you give us a rundown of that article and and some of the developments that you've seen taking place in the industry over the last you know six months yeah yeah so you know anybody that's probably driven through uh west texas and in the permian and midland areas probably noticed seeing you know three to five rigs uh parked next to each other and uh, and that's uh, a sure sign that that something is happening called the cube development. And uh, so you have four or five rigs on site. You have a couple of frack crews and lots of logistical support to manage all the water and sand and supplies. And the term cube really requires uh, some imagination in your head to to uh, understand what they're doing. But it's basically uh, instead of thinking of how an individual horizontal well produces, uh, instead think about how a big block, a 3D block of rock would work when you poke 10 or 20 holes into it. And this is kind of like a network of wells, uh, and it's trying to encapsulate how that reservoir really interacts once those wells are all next to each other. And this is the cube. Um, and so what's interesting to me is that a lot of the coverage that you guys have probably seen is been focused around the economies of scales that you get with these huge operations. Uh, which mm -hmm. is very, very notable. But, uh, you know, what, what I looked at was 
uh, some of the less explored questions around what is really driving uh, these companies to do this. And I think like a lot of things with shale, it comes down to, you know, how complex the subsurface is. And so my reporting showed that the cube projects, cube developments, are really about protecting pad wells from each other and protecting them from what we call frack hits. On that, you know, we talked about this frack hits problem uh, the last time you're on. I'm curious, since then, two-part question really, since then, um, what has been kind of the industry's thoughts on how to resolve the frack hits issue? But then two, you know, we were just talking about before you got on here that um, the lack of pipeline infrastructure as we go into the second half of 2018 and how that's going to impact drilling programs, you're seeing some companies talking about they're going to slow down their drilling uh, programs at least through the end of 2018 and then probably pick, pick up in 2019. Um, so the second part of the question would be is, is as we see companies slow down, will it ha- will, will it allow for the industry to, to kind of work out some of these frack hit issues just because there will be less rigs uh, potentially running in the Permian? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that it has less to do with the rig count, really, and more about how many wells have been drilled in the first place. So so just to give some context on, on the whole frack hit thing, I think that a, a simple way of understanding it is that you have an older well that's been producing for weeks, months, or years, and then when you put a new well uh, next to that, whether it's 500 feet or 1,000 feet, uh, you have to realize that you took a lot out of the ground, and so you created all these pathways of least resistance and so, uh, you know, so you're going to uh, have this, this high potential of, you know, inducing a new fracture with a lot of sand, a lot of water, and it's going to want to go to where the rock is weakest, and that's where you've taken the oil out already. Um, so when we think about the cube developments, um, there's a lot of drilling taking place at once, um, and then there's some fracking taking place at once. Uh, and this does have the effect of delaying the production in some cases uh, because they don't want to turn on anybody doing this, uh, all the practitioners of the cube, uh, they want to manage how much oil and gas they take out of the ground so they don't create those pathways and, uh, and basically waste money or damage wells by sending sand and water into areas where the oil's already gone. Uh, so I, I don't know if you can really link this to, to uh, well counts and try to understand what's going to happen in the future, uh, but by protecting all that pressure and those uh, hydrocarbons in the ground, uh, essentially they're going to get less frack hits. I mean, that's the goal. So if you study this, you hear about uh, child wells and parent wells. Parent wells are those older wells drilled first, um, and a lot of that was uh, driven by drilling to hold the lease. And uh, the child wells are all the new wells. So the new plan is just to create parent wells, you know, just create them all at the same time, preserve the, the pressure, and do not deplete the reservoir, um, and, uh, and you'll get better results. And so all the people uh, doing this so far are starting to say that they're getting really good production results out of that. Uh, but this is a very new plan, a very new shift uh, that only a handful of the biggest companies say they're doing. Uh, so that's like in, in Canada's kind of coined the term cube, uh, cube development, but others are doing it too, Apache, uh, Oxy in particular, which is the uh, company that I focused on in my story. Well, I, I guess what I was thinking, and maybe I'm maybe I'm wrong here, but help me understand, is that if you're gonna if you're if you're saying that they're you know that, that they're drilling these child wells and that's causing the problems, part of that at least in some reason would be that they have a certain drilling program that they're trying to keep up with. So they have to drill so many wells to keep up the drilling program. If they're going to roll back the drilling program, then they can be more uh, selective on where they're going to drill at, which would then potentially 
lower the chances that if they wanted to of not having to drill the child wells, which would lower the fracket. So that's what I was thinking that you could be a little bit more strategic if you're not having to drill at such a high level. Do you do you not agree with that synopsis? Yeah, I think that uh, in terms of well counts or trying to keep up with with drilling programs, nobody wants to say uh, right now. None of the operators would tell you that they're over drilling or under drilling these uh, these sections. Mm-hmm. Um, so what they're really trying to do is is still get the same amount of wells that they always wanted to drill. Um, but uh, after they do all the science homework, they might find out that they uh, need to take one well out or two wells out. Uh, to really save money and optimally uh, uh, produce that area. So they are trying to figure out how many wells do we really, really need versus a couple of years ago there was a lot of projections about uh, how many wells they could fit into these areas. Um, so so with, reser- with respect to the, the bottleneck issue, the one interesting thing is that if you drill 12 wells or 20 wells and, and bring them all at the same time, you have a huge amount of oil coming in. Uh, and that creates uh, very interesting, you know, uh, facility requirements where you have this big peak load uh, that comes with the early days of the well's life uh, before it tapers off. And so uh, in Oxy's case, they will sequentially bring on these wells uh, on their their big pad sites with 10 or 15 wells. They'll, they'll strategically bring on one or two to help manage that, uh, that, that big curve of, of oil production that they're going to get. So, so I, it's really hard to, to, like for me to look into the, uh, uh, the area of where this affects well planning for, you know, the number of wells, but it's definitely having some, some kind of impact on that. No, and it, it, listen, it's definitely an area that I don't, I don't claim to have an expertise on, so I'm just kind of fascinated by how they would think about it. Because we spend a lot of time on the show, you know, just looking at it and you know trying to figure out uh, more from thirty thousand feet. So when you get the weeds here, you're kind of going, okay, I wonder how these companies think about this stuff. Because as you know, you cover the industry. Um, you know, it's the, how one company might think of something is not how some other company might think of something. And so you have all these competing ideals that are out there, and they're trying to figure out which one works the best uh, for their company. So when you talk about these principles, even if you said, well, um, you know, company A, might it might impact their drilling program. It doesn't necessarily mean it's going to pa- impact company B, because as you're talking about in your piece here, not all the companies are even doing um, the cubicle drilling thing. No, and, and a lot of them won't ever be able to do it. I mean, there's I, I kind of kicked the story at the end uh, with the comment that you know the reports are out there that these that these cube developments are very capital intensive, 100 to 250 million dollars a piece, um, and a lot of companies will simply not have that kind of capital resource uh, to devote to these type of projects. So where smaller or mid-sized operators go from here. Uh, is going to be a question uh, that's that's still unanswered. Now, there's a lot of other uh, techniques and strategies being deployed, and I'm looking at those two and reporting on those. But the cube development is the one that stands out as uh, sort of the big boys' solution to this overall problem of of frack hits and frack interference. Awesome. Well, uh, Trent, there's another article that you wrote uh, about Pioneer's analytics project. Um, there was a a conference they did. It was the Unconventional Resources Technology Conference, uh, and you reported that uh, the guy from Pioneer actually said he didn't really learn anything spectacular from machine learning that we didn't already know. Um, now, me and Ryan, we've talked about some of the big data and, and companies as they're trying to learn more and, and become more efficient in their drilling. Uh, I was actually surprised that that was uh, one of the conclusions. What can you tell us about the conference and some of the some of the positives that we're seeing with machine learning in the industry? 
Yeah, so the conference is really interesting. Uh, it's always a, it's always one of the uh, show's best events, or I'm sorry, the industry's best events because it brings together a lot of geologists and uh, petroleum mm-hmm. engineers, and they they talk about uh, what what the pressing issues of the day are. So we covered frack hits and cube developments; those those were big topics. But on the machine learning side, yeah, I was surprised too to hear that you know we didn't really learn much uh, that we didn't already know from Pioneer. I thought that was a interesting and, and candid insight, but you know, what they did was uh, they presented a sort of a high-level uh, overview of a project that involved five different analytics or machine learning companies that um, are coming into the oil and gas space. And and they, they used them uh, to look at data from hundreds and over a thousand wells. And so in, in some cases, they found that the machine learning algorithms were able to agree with some of the assumptions that the engineers already held. For instance, that uh, Pioneer should use more sand and more water uh, in its frack jobs. And that was something that they said they were already concluding themselves, but that it was nice to see that the machine learning agreed with them. And, uh, and there was, but there was other areas where the machine learning fell totally flat. And that was what resonated, I think, with a lot of people in the room and a lot of people who have read the story have uh, seen that as sort of a re- realistic reflection of where the capabilities of machine learning are today. So when we say it fell totally flat, what, what, what are some of the reasons that they felt like it fell totally flat? Was there um, uh, the, the, the technology's not ready, or maybe they went into it with some uh, the, the expectations too high, or kind of break down why we fe- or why they felt like rather um, it felt flat? So one of the, one of the areas that they explored in their talk was uh, talking about a subset of all that data. It was 400 wells, and they and it was in a particular section of the Permian. They gave it to these machine learning uh, vendors, and then they asked them, "Can you can you predict the uh, production from these wells?" So this is historical data. Pioneer knows the answer to the question, and apparently none of them gave a very satisfactory prediction of what production should be. So that was kind of humbling, I wrote, for you know people in the room who may not have uh, gigantic inventories of wells like Pioneer and reams of data like they do. Uh, so it suggested that even if you have 400 um, uh, data from 400 wells, for certain AI and big data techniques, that's still not enough. So you may have to supplement it with uh, production data that comes from you know, places like the Railroad Commission. But even that data can, can be very delayed and spotty. So there was no real perfect uh, solution offered on that front. Um, but there was, there was another thing where I thought was kind of interesting, and, and other people did too, where they would ask the machine learning to pick the biggest drivers of a good well. So, so what, what are the you know, one, number one or number two things that really dictate what a good well is going to be? And when they gave the machine learning algorithms information like, the name of the well or the county where the well was, it would rank those as the biggest drivers. So to put that in the context, it's like saying if your name is LeBron James, <laughs> by chance, you know, you should be a good basketball player. And so if, if well H121 was a good well because it had good production, well, it was the name that made it a good well. That's what the computers thought. So that's interesting. Um, and when these machine learning uh, companies, how much oil and gas experience are they bringing 
um, apart from you know the algorithms and the math and all that stuff. But how many you know people that they that, that are working for these companies are these people that are, have left you know big Exxon's and Apaches and stuff like that and gone to start up these these type of AI companies, or is it folks who just have a computer science background and they're trying to get into the oil and gas industry? Because I wonder how much of that would impact it if you had industry folks um, working for them, or maybe it has no bearing whatsoever. Yeah, that's a great question because you know domain experience, as they as they say, they refer to that all the time. That's very very important. Uh, it's not just the data. You have to have somebody that has looked at the data for years and understands it and put it into context. And so we're seeing that there are a handful uh, or more uh, than that of, of analytics vendors, machine learning vendors, that uh, are more or less purely data science driven companies. But uh, on the flip side, there is an increasing number of oil and gas experience going into some of these companies. There's a number of people who were trained as petroleum engineers originally, uh, got experience with data science in the last five or ten years, and started their own company. So some of these guys are coming out of uh, big service companies and big operators. And then the operators themselves are, are, are staffing up with data scientists and and internally, some of their petroleum engineers are going back to school and getting degrees or certifications in data science. So it's a, it's really a big mix. Uh, but there's a huge drive uh, for engineers to get acquainted with this because that's one way they see themselves as being more relevant in the future to their companies. Uh, and in this, going back to this pioneer case, there were data sets that are pretty popular in oil and gas, like microseismic, which is used to listen into the ground and try to understand how. Uh, big the fracture network might be or how how good it might be. And uh, these things were very hard for the computers to understand because it takes a human to really interpret what that data means. So when, when Pioneer tried to feed that data into these machine learning models, it didn't really understand what it was looking at. So they said that they had to pull in petroleum engineers and add context to that data, basically tell the machine what it was looking at, and then that worked. And so the comment was, we're all going to have jobs in the future because machine learning simply isn't up to the challenge of interpreting all this very domain-specific types of data that uh, you know petroleum engineers are really the only ones that understand. Okay, so I guess the final question on this piece for me is, is if we sit here maybe five years from now, um, you know, it was kind of our opinion on the show that we talk about big data, machine learning, things like this, you kind of go through a couple of phases where phase one is, wow, it's it's a new shiny toy, that's cool, um, look at all the stuff it could do. And then at some point you transition to where it's kind of got that down and you transition to the, hey, you know, we've never thought about these things and how they work together or, or how do we look at this or how do we do this, stuff that you just never have had time to explore, you could expedite that process. Um, but I, I'm curious your take here. Are we even through kind of phase one now, or do we have to step back and say, you know what, it's going to be maybe another three to five years before we can actually say machine learning is is something that's going to be a viable industry solution, or is you know maybe ten years out? How, where, where would you kind of put us before we can say that this is going to be um, common everyday practice and you won't be dependent on as much human interaction? That's maybe the million-dollar question, you know, where are we now, what's it going to look like in a little while. Uh, I think that, uh, to your point, it's, this is phase one. You know, so um, we heard about this technology, you know, three or four or five years ago, really making a splash, and, and you know, that got sort of put into the hype uh, bucket for a lot of people. 
But now, especially with things like this pioneer study or project, we're starting to really see what does this stuff look like? Where, where does it work? Where does it not work? And with the companies that are the operators that are trying to figure this out, what they're looking for is where can I use this to make the most money? I mean, it's really as simple as that. Where does this technology make the most impact? So they're in that discovery phase. And like Pioneer showed, you know, you have to go look and apply it to 10, 20, you know, 30 types of operations to see where that value really is. Some of them are finding out exactly where that value is. Some are talking about it. Some are not. So we're in this phase one of, of this technology being adopted and figured out where it works best. And I would say that the train has you know, left the station for most of the biggest operators. I mean, they are fully invested in, the, in these technologies. The only question for them, aside from where they use it, is uh, you know, which vendors do we, do we keep working with? Uh, who do our, you know, what are our in-house data science teams? What do they focus on? And, but in, in five years, I've heard one guy say, or one you know, uh, uh, professional in this area say, we probably won't be talking about machine learning as much because it'll just be standard. It'll be part of the operations. We won't treat it like a buzz term, and we'll really have good clarity about uh, the differences that it's making. But I would say that you know, we're, we're a little bit away from being able to see uh, super clear into this picture and what it really looks like because a lot of the good stories, as always in, in oil and gas, uh, they tend to be tight hold and uh, people are keeping their cars close to their vest. Okay, well, Trent, um, tell us where we can find you, how often your pieces come out, where people can connect and follow your work. Yeah, yeah, well, you know, I work for the Society of Petroleum Engineers, and uh, our flagship magazine is called the Journal of Petroleum Technology. You can Google SBE and JPT and find us pretty easily. Uh, we are putting out uh, digital coverage of, the, of what's happening in the industry uh, on a weekly basis, and we're also covering a lot of the nuts and bolts of uh, other parts, the uh, sort of the dumb iron aspects of the business where uh, uh, anywhere where technology can help produce more oil and gas safer, cheaper, and uh, more plentiful, that's uh, where you'll find us uh, trying to report on stories. Okay, great. And hopefully we can get you back on the show. Uh, I know we talked a few months back about getting you regular on, and now you're kind of putting out regular content, so hopefully we can get you back on again. Always love the discussion. You are in in the thick of it, and so it's always good to talk to people like yourself. And uh, so it's good to get you back on again today. Well, great. Well, thanks for having me again, guys, and uh, really appreciate it. And uh, keep doing your thing. It's it's a great podcast. Appreciate it, Trent. Thanks a lot, buddy. Well, thanks again to Trent Jacobs for coming on. Again, he's the digital director for the Journal of Petroleum Technology. Uh, great having you on, Trent. We really appreciate it. Lots of great information. Uh, with that, Ryan, I think that wraps us up for the day. Yep, that does. Thanks. Yeah, Trent, it was good talking to you again. Be sure to check him out on um, uh, on the website. He's also on Twitter, um, and you can find him on Twitter. Let's see here, at Trent P. Jacobs. 20holes.com, that's number 20holes.com. Be sure to check that out September 21st. Register for our giveaway on iTunes by leaving a great five-star rating and review. Also... Thank our sponsor, which is Julian Info, globalenergymedia.com slash courthouse, globalenergymedia.com slash courthouse. And Josh, we'll be back next week, man. And uh, until then, keep climbing.